Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that we can spend this time together in your word. And Lord, I pray, I, I thank you for the safety we've had so far this morning on the roads. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to 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 open the Word of God together, to study it together. Lord, I'm thankful for this church and I'm thankful that our time in the Word is not about a feel-good message. It's, it's not about just a, a quick chat in the Word of God, but Lord, I, I truly see it as spending time studying, digging in and seeking to understand, seeking to know to know Your Word, and ultimately to know You. And Lord, I am thankful for the gift of salvation. Lord, I am thankful that we are saved simply by believing that Your Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose from the dead for our sins. And Lord, I am thankful for the life that we have in Christ. I am thankful for the blessings that we have, the spiritual blessings that we have in heavenly places, in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning that, that each of us here knows Your Son as their Savior. And Lord, I, I pray that each of us lives a, li a life that brings honor and glory to You and You alone. And Lord, I pray that this message this morning, the words that are preached this morning, encourage us in that walk. It's in your Son's name I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Alright, boys and girls. When I say Christian, what definition comes to mind? If you were to boil it down to its, its most basic definition, what, what definition comes to mind? What? Following Christ? Loving Christ? Okay. Alright. Loving Christ. I mean, if, if we are if we are to, to boil it down, because Christian has been has been meant to mean so many things today, but if we were to get to the very root of root, is it root root or root here? Root? You're a transplant too though. Right. <laughs> Is it root or root? Seriously. Both? Root? Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. In Wisconsin, what is it? Wisconsin. Root? All right. If we boil it down to its R-O-O-T definition, could we agree that a Christian is or should be a follower of Christ? I mean, that's, that's a loving Christ, just a follower of Jesus Christ. If we were to, to just come together and agree, which seems to be something in culture that is hard to do these days, a Christian would be a follower of Christ. And when does, according to that definition, when could we, according to Scripture, say that that's, following of Christ actually begins. 
It begins the moment one trusts in what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary for them, correct? I mean, the moment you you surrender to his to his gift of salvation, you surrender your flesh to, to his will. Turn with you're in Romans chapter six, verse three. Verse one, let's go back there. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not? You know, the, the, this, this last couple messages, the theme has been um, ignorant brethren. We're looking at passages that talk about ignorant brethren. And I actually have a note in my Bible. I under, underlined, know ye not, and literally wrote in, are you, are you ignorant? Are you ignorant? And that was not a note from this message. That was a, something I scribbled in there years ago. Are you ignorant? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And he, he's not talking about, this is not a water baptism here. It's talking about identification. We are identified with Christ's death. All right? So we're identified with his death. We are baptized into his death. Literally what he's saying here is we are, we are thoroughly immersed in Jesus Christ's death. So the moment, you know, what, what, what is the, the salvation? What is, what is the message? You have to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures for your sin, right? The, 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 the things that I've done. I, I am a sinner who has been saved by the grace of God, right? And so today... Scripture refers to me as, as a saint. I'm a believer. I, I'm, a, I'm a beloved one. There are all these, these definitions. So he says here, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. We are thoroughly immersed in His death. The moment we believe, we are thoroughly identified with Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Therefore, verse 4, we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Right? So, so he gives the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection. And whereas in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, it talks about what we have to believe to be saved, believe that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, for our sin. And the moment we believe that, we are saved. We change our eternal destination from spending eternity in a lake of fire to spending eternity with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven. And here in Romans chapter 6, he, he is giving some, some clarity to, as I look at this, he's giving clarity as to here's what you're believing and here's, here's why you're believing it. This is actually what takes place. You're identified with his death. His burial and His resurrection. And therefore, the end of verse 5 says, uh, was it verse 5? Verse 4? Thank you. The end of verse 4 says, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So we should walk in newness of life. Why? Why should we walk in newness of life? Well, that's because we've been identified with His death, burial, and resurrection, right? We've been raised in newness of life. And therefore, our life should be a reflection of that new life that we have in Christ the moment 
we trusted in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. And where do we learn how to walk in newness of life? He gave us this, he gave us this book that explains to us all these things of, of how to live as this new creation in Christ. He just doesn't expect us to suck it from our thumb. He doesn't expect us to cipher it from the culture because you're going to look a long time to find it there. You're not going to find it, but when you get into the Word of God, the Word of God teaches us, and the Holy Spirit through His Word teaches us how to walk in newness of life. And so the Bible and the Holy Spirit through His Word is the final authority that teaches us how we should walk in newness of life. Not the culture, right? You sure? Okay, all right. How about the church? Should the church? Let me let me rephrase that. Does the church? Does the church teach us? If they base it on the Bible, so you're bringing it back to the Word of God, not the church. So so how we live and how we walk in newness of life might be a reflection of of the church, but not necessarily. Ultimately, it comes back to the Word of God. And what about other Christians? I mean, other Christians should be an example of how to live. But if we're honest, there's a lot of times when Christians aren't walking in newness of life. And if we're really honest, there's a lot of times when even sometimes we as Christians maybe aren't walking exactly like we should. Which is why we need to get back to the Word of God daily, renewing our mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I have something that I want you to look at. This is from the 117th Congress. Uh, this is... Uh, this is the Congress that was sworn in uh, in January, January 3rd, 2019. Okay? So this is not the current Congress. This is the, these statistics, you all, are, you all are peaking. This is a reflection of the, the 2009 Congress that was sworn in January 3rd, 2019, and the Congress. Uh, well, it doesn't give us the Congress before that. The Congress before that. So, we, we talk about Republican and Democrat and Independent, right? And, and the Senate is split 50-50, uh, right? With the Vice President getting the, the tying vote right now. And that's how, that's how we are programmed and taught to look at this. So, nobody in the Senate has the majority right now. The, the Well, the Democrats have the tying vote. And, and in the House of Representatives, the... The uh, the Democrats have the majority, right? I mean, that's what we're taught to think that way. However, Republican, Democrat, I, I, I've, I've, I've screamed this repeatedly. We need to see this as a spiritual battle. All right, so just just look at look at this statistic right up here. Eighty-eight point two. 
According to January 3rd, 2019, there was still one uh, House seat that was being contested. You know, it's crazy when you have contested elections. Uh, but, but that number, can we get there? It, right up there, is 88.2% of Congress, of the last Congress, 88.2% of Congress identified as Christian. Everybody say it with me. Wow. Wow. And according to the root definition of Christian, a Christian is a follower of Christ. And so 88.2%, now it breaks it down, and this is where it does break down a little bit, because there's a lot of groups that are considered Christian. Uh, Obviously, you know, it comes into the Protestant, and then it lists all the ones that they consider, that they list as Protestants, and then if you go, if you go down, you know, there's some in here that are listed as, you know, Christian scientists. I would not put in the Christian category other than the fact that they have Christian in their name. Um, honestly, I, I don't know what this one is, but I wonder if, you know, I like the first three letters, pi. Uh, and obviously under Christians, go up a little bit further, you have Catholics, you have Mormons, uh, Orthodox Christians, which is kind of like Catholics. Uh, but but you see it, it breaks down all these all these other ones. I've seen this one put in with Christians. I don't know why it's not in. But this is by the way, this is Pew Pew Research Council. All right? So uh go back up to the top. So all, all the way right there. So 88.2% of Congress consider themselves Christians. So you would think with a supermajority that that their that their legislation would be a reflection of biblical principles, right? I mean because these are followers of Christ, right? Now you realize that that they are elected officials, they are elected representatives of the people, okay? So before we go throwing Congress under the bus here, look at this last, the percentage of U.S. adults who identify as followers of Christ. Again, is not as good as Congress, but still is quite the majority. 71% of people living in the United States, of adults living in the United States, identify as Christian. So you would think with 71% of of people in the United States, adults, identifying as Christians, and 88.2% of our elected officials in Congress, you would think that the legislation, you, you would think we would have this amazing culture of people following Christ. And, and, our, and our legislation would be a reflection of of a culture, of a representative government following Christ. And on top of that, our, our newly elected president has we've been told repeatedly that he is a devout Catholic, which according to Pew Research labels him as a Christian. And by the way, this is the Congress before this was 91 percent 
Christian. That's impressive. So, so our legislation should reflect consistent biblical principles, a consistent biblical worldview. Obviously, you know where this is going, don't you? Um, instead, what have these Congresses gone on to do? Wasn't that many Congresses ago that the Supreme Court redefined marriage, which God ordained, and a man and a woman. But since then, we've gone on to redefine man and woman. And, and this is in a... Oh, it's gone. That's okay. This is, in, this, is in a, this is in a government that is... Or in a nation that is 70, 71% Christian and a, and, a, and a legislature, a representative government that is 88.2% Christian. And yet they don't listen to God and His Word. In fact, our laws... Our laws are the third worst laws concerning abortion in the world. Third. We are in third place. We, have, we, have the, we are most open and most supportive of, of abortion. We are in third place. Rah-rah. Something to be proud of. You know who we finished third to? China and North Korea. We should be so proud as a nation of Christians. And I actually, I would say we are worse than China and North Korea. And I'll tell you why. Because China and Korea have horrible abortion laws. But they keep it all in-house. We are worse, I believe, than China or North Korea because we export our finances to support abortion and the murder of the unborn around the globe because we wouldn't want to keep that to ourselves. Our, our overwhelmingly Christian government, representatives, Republican, Democrat, we can't see it that way anymore. We can't are not only not advancing a biblical agenda, but they are also not even advancing an amoral agenda. Our, our government representatives, and quite frankly, we the people, the people, 71% that define themselves as Christians, are allowing not an, an, an unbiblical worldview. They're not, we're not advancing a biblical worldview. We're not advancing an amoral Amoral laws. We're, we're advancing immoral practices, aren't we? I mean, if we're, if we're going to be honest, the murder of the unborn is not an amoral issue. It's an immoral issue. How can a government body that is, it's not even close, overwhelmingly define themselves as Christians? How can they, as Christians, vote for such gross sin? I have three options. And I'm promising you that it's a combination of all three. There's a real possibility that while they define themselves as Christians, they're not saved. 
which is why we need to pray for our president and pray for our government leaders, Republicans and Democrats. First and foremost, we need to pray for their salvation. There is another option. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Four words. Quench not the Spirit. It's possible that some of those representatives and some of those 71% that are Americans that define themselves as Christians are saved, but have so been so consumed by the culture that they have effectively quenched the Holy Spirit in their life. And so they're not living according to the Word of God. They're not living consistent with the Word of God. Even though their eternal destination in heaven is secure, they are, they are saved individuals. But you would never know it to look at them because they have so quenched the Holy Spirit in their life. And both of those are very real possibilities. But there's a third option that I think ties closely to the second option of quenching the Holy Spirit. And for this, I'd like you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22. In 2 Kings 22, the king, Josiah, is is reigning as king and they're doing some renovations to the temple. The temple has fallen into disrepair and so they've hired carpenters, builders, masons. They're, they're working on repairing the temple. And in verse 8 it says, And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Don't you wonder what the high priest had been doing all these years in the temple, that they didn't even know where their holy writings had been placed. You know, at some point, they just misplaced that all-important book, those all-important scrolls of theirs. And nobody even thought about it. I am so glad that Christianity today has not lost track of their holy writings and been distracted by fill-in-the-blank. By a, by a charismatic preacher, by a, a, a great worship band, by all these other things. It says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. First of all, I'd like to back up to something that just happened right there. Did anybody pick up on what just happened? Huh? Okay, he read it. So he, he, they find it, and then they read it. Well, he reads it. And then he goes to the king. Now realize that in Israel, the king is very closely tied to the spiritual leadership and everything that's going on there. As goes the king, so goes the nation of Israel. But, but realize, he reads this book. Shaphan reads this book. The high priest, Hilkiah, gives it to Shaphan. Shaphan reads it. He goes to the king to give a report 
that they found the, the law. They, they found their holy scriptures. That would be important, wouldn't you think? So he goes into the king to give a report. And he comes falling all over himself saying, Oh king, look, what, look, we found these holy scriptures. Look, we found the law. Is that what he does? What's he give a report of first? Did anybody see it? The, the money, they gave the financial report first. <laughs> hey, hey, don't worry. Don't worry. We got the money. We got it to the builders. Everything's on schedule. Don't worry about it. Oh, and we found this book. I mean, to me, that just points to the, the level of degradation in Israel, in their religion at that time. Uh, where was I? Verse 11. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of that person, Machiah and Shaphan the scribe and Azahiah the servant of the king saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because... Quote, our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Hiakim and Ekbor and all those people, the son of Hazha, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college and they communed with her and she said unto them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, tell the man that sent you to me. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. Yes, king, you read it right. Trouble's coming. Because, listen to this, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. When you forget what the Word of God says, you know what happens when you forget what the Word of God says? Do you stop doing things when you forget what the Word of God says? No, you keep doing things. But the things that you do that you think are what God would be pleased with is not pleasing to God. And therefore there are consequences and they are ignorant of the fact that they are even doing these things. And yet somebody comes along and finds a copy of the law. And it sheds a little light on that darkness, doesn't it? The religious leaders didn't shed light on the darkness. The other Jews didn't shed light on that darkness. It was the scriptures that shed light on the darkness. There are three reasons, three options that we must consider for how a government and a people who are overwhelmingly statistically Christian could be living in this wicked darkness, darkened nation in which we are living. Either they're not saved, they just choose to identify as Christians. They are saved and they've quenched the Holy Spirit. Or 
They don't even know what the word of God says. And regardless of the first two, the third one is true. They do not know what the word of God says. Or they think they do and think that they are obeying. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 3. says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. So Paul is writing to the Philippians, and these, the Philippian church was really a, a model church. They were a healthy church. Church, they were partakers in the ministry. Whether whether financially they were supporting him in different ways, they were they were caring for Paul. They were supporting his ministry in any way they could. And how is it that they were doing those things? What was it that made them so healthy? Keep reading, verse eight. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in my in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Jesus Christ till the day of Christ what what was it that made the Philippian church a healthy church what was it that made the Philippian believers healthy spiritually you know what it was knowledge and discernment they spent time in the scriptures they spent time studying the scriptures i think what makes a church healthy is when a church systematically preaches and teaches the word of god that's what makes a healthy church. A healthy church is not determined by the foot size of the footprint in the community. A healthy church is not determined by the number of programs that a church runs. The health of a church is determined first and foremost by the systematic preaching and teaching of the Word of God. The study of the Word of God. Getting into the Scriptures. Understanding the Scriptures. That's what leads to love abounding more and more. But you can show all the love in the world and still be an unhealthy church. There are plenty of churches that would, that would show cultural love in so many ways today that are doing so many things that, that culturally seem to be the right things to do but are spiritually bankrupt because they're not systematically preaching and teaching the Word of God. They're not in the Word of God regularly learning and growing and maturing as God desires each of us to grow and mature. We need to study the Scriptures. We cannot 
afford to be biblically ignorant any longer. And yet that's that's the problem we see today. That that 71% of our culture in America consider themselves Christians. And yet are biblically ignorant. Have no idea what the Scripture says. Maybe have no idea that salvation is, is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They identify as Christian because well, I'm not Buddhist. I'm not Muslim. I'm not. They identify themselves as Christian because they're not anything else. They identify as Christian because, well, grandma and grandpa were Christians. They identify as Christians because I went to church once. They identify as Christians because, scary thought, they identify as Christians because right now it's culturally acceptable to, to identify as Christians. But I think there's a day fast approaching in this country when it will no longer be culturally acceptable to identify as Christians. With the cancel culture we have today, it's only a matter of time until until people run from that label. Mark my words, it's coming. And if we are going to stand against the onslaught, it is absolutely essential that we are not Christians in name only. That we are that we are grounded in the truth. That we know biblical truth. And have an understanding of the armor of God that we will need to, to stand and withstand the onslaught no matter what happens. And so last week I gave you six places, the the phrase or the words um, ignorant brethren appear six times in your Bible. And six times, all six times are found in Paul's epistles. And so we're going to go through these a little more slowly this morning. And we are going to look at these six areas that God does not want us to be ignorant Brethren, first of all, uh, before I get to the first one, for us to be brethren, the term brethren is is referring to those who are saved. So the first thing, as we as we before we even get to the ignorance part, as brethren, we need to be saved. We need to be trusting in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. We need to be trusting that He died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose from the dead for our sins. In Timothy, the Word of God says God's will is that all men be saved. That's the death, burial, and resurrection, right? God's will is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the we can't be ignorant part. See, God doesn't want us to be ignorant brethren. We we must be brethren first. Because we really can't learn spiritual truths if we're not truly saved, if we're not trusting what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. But once we've, once we've got that out of the way, once we've trusted in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary, once we've determined and secured our eternal destination, it is important, it is, it is important that we get into the Word of God, and that we study and that we learn and we grow. But listen, it needs to be 
systematic. It needs to cover a lot of different areas. And it's not something I've, I've had people say, well, I know all that stuff. Really? Then you are smarter than me because I've been studying it a long time and there's still a lot I've got to learn. You didn't have to agree. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. What is it that God does not want us to be ignorant of? Romans chapter 1. Verse 13. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In verse 13, he uses those words, ignorant brother. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to not know you need to know this. You need to understand this. Well, what, what was it that he was talking about? I would, have you, I would not have you ignorant brethren. Concerning what? That there were a lot of times when Paul wanted to get to Rome. He desired to get there. He desired to teach them. He desired to expound the Scriptures to them. But my Bible says, but was let hitherto. It has these parentheses. But was let hitherto. Now, the word let in English has kind of taken on this 180 degree opposite definition of what it used to mean. The word let today means to allow. I will, your kids ask for something, I will let you do that. But at this time, at the time that the King James was written, the word let had actually the 180 degrees opposite definition. And when you go back in the Greek and you look at this, it has the idea of hindering, of stopping. So First Corinthians, Romans chapter 1 says, I purpose to come unto you, but was hindered hitherto. Something or someone was impeding Paul's progress from getting to Rome. Paul had this plan, I want to get to Rome. But all along the way, there were, there were impediments, there were things that were holding him up from getting to where he felt he needed to be. Who do you think? You know, just, just, you know, let your mind wander a little bit here. Who do you think would be so desirous to keep Paul from going somewhere and sharing the truth of the Word of God? I, I, I don't know. I mean... We are, according to Ephesians chapter 6, in a spiritual battle, right? We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That verse is clearly a reference to, to Satan and, and his armies, his, 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 his organized minions to do his bidding, right? That's, that's the battle we are in. We are in a spiritual battle. We've looked at Ephesians chapter 6 that that's the enemy, that, that one another, we are not the enemy. Sometimes Christians see each other as the enemy or treat each other like the enemy. Sometimes we look at congressmen as the enemy, right? But we've said over and over again, listen, people are not the enemy. Congressmen are not the... Congressmen are people, by the way, but, uh, but, but that's not the enemy. We have a spiritual enemy that is seeking to devour and destroy. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Paul was out there wielding the armor of God, wielding the sword of the Lord, wielding the Scripture. And the last thing Satan wanted was for that message to be proclaimed in Rome. Because Rome was the, was the epicenter of the world. If the Gospel could get to Rome, the Gospel could get anywhere. And so Satan, I'm sure, would have been working overtime to, to be that thorn in the flesh to keep, to keep the Apostle Paul from proclaiming that message to Rome because that message would then go to a lost and dying world. But Paul would not have been the only one under attack, would he? Would he? Wouldn't the saints at Rome also have been under spiritual attack? And so, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Because what happens? I thought Paul was going to come see us. Boy, he must, he must like those other people more. What, is he, what, what have we done wrong? Why hasn't he come? To, I mean, can't you just hear it? You can hear the, the pity party. And wouldn't Satan just love to, to get their focus off of what it should be? And so Paul writes to them and said, listen, I, I desired to come to you. There's been plenty of times when I've wanted to. But I was hindered from getting to you. Paul, the, the first thing Paul does not want them to be ignorant of is the spiritual battle that is raging around them. They are in the midst. He is in the midst. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And listen, we need, as Christians, we need to see this world through spiritual eyes. Through the spiritual lens. We need to recognize the attack of Satan. We need to, to stop and realize that Satan will use this flesh for his own purposes. To destroy and devour. Turn with me to, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. What happens when we are ignorant brethren concerning the spiritual battle that is raging around us? Verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. <laughs> Last thing any of us should want is for Satan to take advantage of us, right? Right? 
Anybody here want that? To have Satan take advantage of us? You know, it's interesting, that word ignorant there in verse 11 has the idea of to ignore, obviously. To be disinclined. To have a lack of enthusiasm. We just don't care. I think a lot of times that's really a problem in Christianity today. It's not even so much that we just don't know. Because it's one thing to not know because you can always learn. But if you don't care, if you just don't care, you will always be ignorant. And that applies in a lot of areas of life. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have students, you have kids that just don't care. They will remain ignorant for a long, long time. But if you get them to care, you don't have to teach them. If you get them to care, you just have to get out of the way. Paul wants us to know about the spiritual battle. Paul wants us to know, Paul wanted those, those in Rome to know what he was doing because he was out there in the spiritual battle. This morning we shared about Word of Grace mission. It's important that we are not ignorant of what other Christians are doing. We need to know what one another are doing in the Lord, what, what missionaries are doing, what other churches are doing. That's important. Because listen, we're not the only ones in the spiritual battle. Satan loves to, to get people by themselves. Feel like you're the only one. Isn't that exactly what, what uh, happened uh, on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And then he left there and he had a pity party for himself. He just defeated Baal. Everything was consumed off the, the altar, the rocks, the wood, the, the, the sacrifice, everything. And then he went off by himself and had a pity party and God came and said, you think you're the only one here? There are 7,000 just like you who will not bail to bail. Bend the knee to bail. Bow to bail. Say that ten times fast. It's important that we know that we are in a spiritual battle, but it's important that we know that everyone else that's in the spiritual battle. So for no other reason that we can pray for them who are in the spiritual battle. There's another thing that Paul wants us to not be ignorant of. Turn back to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, just for the sake of time this morning, we'll just do verse 25. But I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. This, this passage God does not want us to be ignorant, and he's being very specific here about one specific area of the mystery truth. He's talking about the blindness in part has happened to Israel. That Israel has been set aside in unbelief. It goes on down through here to say verse 32, but for God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. God, in his wisdom, set Israel aside in unbelief. Israel for, for thousands of years, you go all the way back to Genesis, God calls Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob 
and Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and they were they be and, and from him his sons became the twelve tribes of Israel, and they were God's chosen people. They were they had they had they were the conduit through which the world would come to God. But there came a point in time where Israel stopped being that light to the world. And in fact, Israel set out, we can trace it in Scripture, where Israel set out to impede people from coming to God, to impede Gentiles from coming to God. And that did not catch God by surprise. God was not caught off hand. God knew that that time would come. And in that moment, God chose to set Israel aside in unbelief. And verse 32 addresses that very specifically. For God hath concluded them all, Israel, in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon everyone, Jews and Gentiles, in one body, in Christ. And just to just to mark the magnitude of, of that change. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. God knew. And He kept that close to the vest. He chose in His perfect timing, to set Israel aside at, at, at a point of His choosing so that all, Jew and Gentile, might have the opportunity to be saved according to Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. God does not want us to be ignorant of that. Why does God not want us to be ignorant of that? Well, I think he gives the answer right there in verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Why? Lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. What is God saying in that line right there? You miss this mystery. You miss this defining moment in, in my timeline that I've laid out. And it will lead to pride in self-wisdom. Right? You'll be wise in your own conceits. When we think of conceit, you think of pride, right? And wise is wisdom. That, you, that your, your pride will be in your own wisdom, not in what I'm actually doing. I guess if we were to put that in the TSV, the Turner Standard Version. If you miss this, you're going to be just full of yourself. I mean, really, that's, that's what he's saying. You are going to be filled up with yourself if you miss this mystery. God does not want us to be ignorant. He wants us to know that Israel has been blinded for a time. He also wants us to know, according to that passage, that that blindness of Israel will expire when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now you think, well, why would God want us to know that? Other than the fact that He doesn't want us to be full of our own wisdom. What's, how does that affect my life? Do you know what comes after Romans chapter 11? 
chapter 12. For God hath concluded them all in belief that he might have mercy upon all. That's verse chapter 11, verse 32. So God has extended this mercy to everyone, right? So what should be the effect of the mercy of this mystery that God has, has, that he wants us to know about? He doesn't want us to be ignorant of this mystery that he's extended his mercy upon everyone. Chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You know what he just talked about in verse 11, that he might have mercy upon all? Now he says, listen, I beg you, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because he has extended these mercies to everyone, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove, that ye may demonstrate what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is, why is it that God does not want us to be ignorant of this mystery? Because when you realize what Jesus Christ has done, you realize what God has given us in extending grace and mercy to us, that He might have mercy upon all. When you realize the mercy that God has extended upon us today in this dispensation of grace in which we live, the very practical side of that is it should transform your life. Shouldn't it? You, sh you should, because of the mercies of God, you should be willing to be a living sacrifice. You should be willing to not conform to this world. Do you see the very practical side of this? You know, we talk about theology and we get into these, these deep points of theology. And people will say, well, I know all that. What's it matter? He just spelled it out. And if you miss, look at the two sides of that coin. If you miss this mystery, you'll be full of your own self-pride and self-wisdom. People who miss the mystery, who miss the, 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 the blessings of the, of the mystery truth, the message that was revealed to the Apostle Paul, when people fail to rightly divide, what happens? They're filled with, well, confusion. They're also have a strong leaning toward living under the law. And living under the law leads to a church filled with very prideful people. Right? You don't believe me? Go find a church that's living according to the law. And you'll find a group of very prideful people. They, they go hand in hand. They really do. Because it's, look what I've done. I'm doing a better job than you. I have a story that I was popped in my head, but maybe I'll share it in Sunday school. That's the, I'll get you all to stay and hear the story. Uh, anyway. Um, but when you understand the mystery, when you understand the grace of God, when you understand the mercy of God, does it or does it not truly transform your life?
that you desire. Nobody's forcing, nobody's forcing anyone here to live for Christ. I, I, I don't go and visit the church to make sure everybody's in line. The elder board doesn't go through and have regular visits to make sure that you know, you're putting your money in the offering plate and that your house is in order and, and all of that, right? I mean, I've been here 15 years and it's never happened. Never happened in the years before that either. It's not like I brought in something new. Because when you understand the grace and mercy of Almighty God in this dispensation of grace in which we live, you desire to be a living sacrifice. You desire to not conform to this world. You desire to not be consumed by the culture. It truly transforms your life. And so the Apostle Paul did not want them to be ignorant of the mystery. He wanted them to understand the dispensational change. Next week, we will get to the final four. Uh, the final four. We've got two. We have know the spiritual battlefield and know the mystery. The first one was you need to be saved, but that one really doesn't count for the six. Uh, so we, we need to not be ignorant of the spiritual battle that is taking place around us. The second one was Romans 11.25. We know, need to know the mystery. We need to know the dispensational change because it will transform our lives. That's why God doesn't want us to be ignorant of it. Of it. Next week, we are going to get to the third one, which is God does not want us to be ignorant of Israel's biblical history for a very important reason. So we will get to that one and three more next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, we, we, we praise you for who you are. And Lord, we thank you. Thank you, thank you for giving us your word. And Lord, I pray that our Bibles are not doorstops. That our Bibles are not dust collectors. Lord, I pray that our Bibles are worn out from reading. Worn out from studying. That our minds are worn out from meditating, from thinking about your word. And that our minds are filled with verses we've memorized because we have a desire to not be ignorant. We have a desire to know. And so, Lord, we, we give our lives to You. And, Lord, we give our time to You to spend as You so desire. It's in Your Son's name I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.